Satan is able to take people who are walking carnally and who oppose themselves in their spiritual walk at his own will. Now, how can we come to have the power to overcome the will of Satan and be empowered by the will of God? How can we come to have the kind of power that we would like to have spiritually? Would we not like the power of healing? Would we not like the power of knowledge? Many different types of power that can come. And too often, the church has been powerless, toothless, no real power to do anything. How can we achieve that power? There was an old, there was a radio preacher I can just barely remember way back in the 50s that was on the radio. He'd come on before Mr. Armstrong. I forget who it was now, but he called himself the God's man of faith and power, was the way he put it. And that was what he wanted to do. He, I think he was the one that would have you lay your hand on the radio so you could feel the power of God coming through him through that radio. I don't guess I even need to know his name. He's probably dead by now. He sounded old then to me. Of course, when you're a kid, anyone over 20 sounds old, so I don't know how old he really was. But let's go on down now into chapter 3 with that preface. It says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And I don't know in some respects how it could become much more perilous for church people than it is today. Now, yes, as we get into tribulation and so on, perhaps it'll be more perilous physically, but look at the thousands and tens of thousands who are dying at our left and right hand spiritually right now and tell me we're not in perilous times. We're in peril of losing our salvation. And we have the witness of thousands who are going through that very process right in front of us. Friends, neighbors, relatives, former brethren and worldwide, here and there. And people are falling out of organizations yet today and going either giving up or going into paganism, Protestantism, same thing, or whatever, and giving up what they have had. These are indeed perilous times. And you can be claimed by the power of Satan at his will if you do not have power to withstand that. And Satan's angels and ministers can appear as angels of light. They have that capacity to sound so good and yet pull you away from the word of God. Perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now we, I think, have read what Paul wrote here to Timothy and thought over the years perhaps he was referring to society at large, not to people in the church. But now what is Paul's subject? He's talking to a minister about the church and about himself as a minister in the church. He's not addressing society at large here. Now, yes, Israel and society at large do fit the description given here as we get into it. But I think it also fits the church. Why does the love of God leave God's people? 
Matthew 24. Because iniquity, sin, shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. Christ is not addressing society at large there at all. He's talking about iniquity within the church. And I think that Paul here is also addressing iniquity within the church. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Is there any selfishness anywhere within the church? (laughs) Is there any selfishness anywhere within us? Within you? Within me? Let's be specific here. That's our carnal nature. That's our normal approach, is to be selfish. To want what we want when we want it. And how we want it. Covetous? Is there any covetousness in the church? Did we begin to not truly hunger and thirst for the things of God and begin to hunger and thirst for money, for things of this world, for entertainment of this world, for uh, the king's dainties and the the, uh, physical food goodies of this world? We need to think about that a little bit. Someone brought up a point yesterday which I felt was very, very insightful. And that is that back in the 50s and 60s and perhaps even into the 70s a little bit, we had a fairly heavy uh, emphasis on things which were brown. Whole wheat bread, brown sugar, we were confused. We thought that it was not as refined as much. Lo and behold, we find out it was refined just as much and then had molasses and coloring poured back into it. So it was just white sugar made brown. But we wanted honey instead of sugar. Um, I guess whole wheat eggs, brown ones instead of white ones. I I don't know how far it went. (laughs) But uh, there was a consciousness of being careful about the things that we ate, of having only healthful things. And at some point we began to lose that. We began to go to just whatever you want to eat. And then it came to the point that you were looked down upon somewhat if you ate whole wheat bread and and tried to eat healthfully because, oh, it's just physical things anyway. But the point that was made was that when we began to lose our concern for even those physical things we put in our body, and whether they were good or not good, wholesome or not wholesome, we also began to lose our desire for that which was wholesome spiritually. Now, it wasn't for eating sugar or white bread, necessarily, that God scattered the church. It was for imbibing of spiritual white bread, that which had no strength in it, that which had no nutrition in it. We are physical human beings. And God's judgment upon us is based to a great degree on physical things, isn't it? How we treat our neighbor physically, whether we actually give him a cup of cold water or food and drink or clothes or shelter when he needs it. Not whether we say, be warmed and filled, I love you dearly. Go to a motel. (laughs) I love you dearly. I hope you find something to eat. You see... You can't have a so-called right spiritual attitude unless you're doing the right physical things. 
And I think that the very fact that we began to de-emphasize that which was good and helpful physically caused us to then, as a result, there is cause and effect. It began to lead us to accept things which were not spiritually wholesome as well. And I wonder if we shouldn't get back to those things on both a physical level and consequently then on a spiritual level. If we covet those things that are out there in the world that just taste so good but make us fat and unhealthy and destroy our immune systems and on and on and on it goes. I don't want to make this into a sermon on health. But we began to lose power physically I mean, if you eat the wrong things, you don't exercise, you don't take care of the temple physically that God gave you, then pretty soon you begin to lose your spiritual vigor as well. You don't have the power and the strength to do those things spiritually which you need to do. And we're getting older and we're getting sicker as a church of God overall because we've been eating those things of the world both physically and spiritually not taking care of ourselves in a right and proper manner. So do we covet those things? Getting back to 2 Timothy 3 here, that are out there in the world. Uh, when I say, uh, touch not the unclean thing, this, this has ramifications in every part of life. Every part of life. Because the world has a lot of junk out there. You go into a grocery store, and try to figure out what percentage of things that are in that store are actually good food with good nutrition involved in them. Nearly every one of them has a list as long as your arm almost of chemicals and sugars and corn syrups and refined things that are actually poisons to our bodies. But it's easy to pick them up off the shelf and pay $6 a pound for them (laughs) or whatever and have nothing there that is good. But we covet those things because our tastes have been perverted. And then our spiritual tastes get perverted as well. We like to hear smooth and easy things. We don't like to make a salad because that takes time to cut up all those veggies. We just as soon get something that's open the bag and pop it in the mouth. We're lazy. And don't we become spiritually lazy as well? I want to keep God's laws. Let's just love. That's the Protestant way. Boasters. A lot of people are spiritually proud today. It could affect you and me, too. We're proud of the fact that we're the Philadelphians, a lot of people will say. They won't say they're proud. They'll just say they're the Philadelphians in a very proud and haughty way. And every one else of you are the Laodiceans. Isn't that spiritual pride? Isn't that thinking you're okay and have need of nothing? Boy, do these things affect us or not? Boasters, proud, those things go together. Blasphemers. We don't blaspheme necessarily by just the things that come out of our mouth in terms of curses and swearing and so on. But we can blaspheme by the way we live, by the way we treat our physical and physical bodies and spiritual minds by imbibing of those things which are wrong. God tells us to eat that which is good, both physically and spiritually. 
You know why one reason Joe DeCott Sr. was so confused on religion? He imbibed the Protestant preachers. Many, many hours a day, I hear. What does Second John 10 say? They don't bring this word, this gospel, this message. Don't allow them in your house. Don't listen to them. That's not talking about their physical bod coming in your, through your screen door and sitting on your couch necessarily. It includes that, but it's what they say that he's talking about. And they can say it over radio and television just as easily as they can on your couch. And you're the one that invites it in. And sometimes they sw- say sweet, loving things and appear as angels of righteousness. But it's blasphemy because it is against the law of God. Disobedient to parents, spiritual parents as well as physical. Unthankful, how easy it is to become, to, to begin to gripe, to grumble, to complain, to be unthankful, instead of being thankful for what we do have. That is an Israelite trait that goes way, way, way back we have freedom, but we don't have water. <laughs> you know, we want water, and we want food, and we don't want manna anymore. We want something else. All right, have quail. You get tired of quail after a while, too, by the millions, I think. But so many scriptures tell us to be thankful for what we do have. Unholy. And thought and indeed. Well, if it's talking about the world, they're, all, they're unholy in every way, right? This has got to be talking about the church of God being unholy. There's no question the world is unholy. The question is with the church. The question is you and me. <clears throat> Without natural affection, we have sometimes affected personalities. It's hard to have the right natural affections of God. And this even goes into homosexuality and all kinds of things, too, not having the natural desires that God says in Romans 1 we should have and says we should not have the unnatural. But that is increasing within the greater church of God as well, too. All kinds of unnatural affections. Truce breakers, not keeping our word, in other words. We made a truce. We made a pact. We made a contract with God. We, we signed a truce so we would no longer live like the world or live like Satan. You know, we ran, we ran up the white flag and said, God, I surrender. I'll do it your way. That's a truce. And then we go back on that. We don't keep our word. False accusers. So easy to read someone else's motivations to think that they are thinking a certain way. And they may not be at all. But that is our assessment of how they are thinking. And to us, it appears unrighteous. So it's very easy to falsely accuse. Because we don't really know often what is in the heart and mind of that person. They may be trying very hard. They may have a lack of understanding. They may have a lack of knowledge. They need to be instructed, perhaps, not condemned, not put down, 
not despised, not talked about, and gossiped about. Incontinent. We use that term today mostly for young or old who wet their diapers. But it actually means no self-control. Unable to control ourselves in many respects. Do you and I have a problem with that? No. But it, it, it creates peril for us, doesn't it? If we can't control ourselves, what comes out of our mouths, what is thought in our head, what our hands and our feet do, what our mouths do, lack of self-control causes most of our health problems. Now, yes, some of those things that are out there in the world, well, that's, that's a self-control problem. We like those things. We've, we've become accustomed to the taste of a lot of those things, which are not good for us. So we eat them. We don't control ourselves. And that puts us in peril physically, and it can spiritually as well, because those, the spiritual and the physical really cannot be separated, because we are physical. And it is the right spirit and mind that brings us to do those things God wants to do, us to do in our heads and hearts. How do we come to have the power to overcome these? Traitors. Traitors against God. Traitors toward each other. Traitors between husbands and wives. Heady. The big head. High-minded. Thinking that we're above others, that we're smarter than them, or we understand more than them, or why don't they get with it? Um, It has to do with pride. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Now, the world doesn't love God at all. So this is talking again about the church. And we came to the point. We were loving the pleasures, the couch potato approach, the whatever approach, uh, sports, entertainment, uh, various things that we could get into. And those began to take our attention because they really interested us whereas the interest in spiritual things began to wane. Is it any wonder God has scattered the church because we began to love other things more than God? All right, let's get down to the crux of it here. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. We are to turn away from anyone who denies the power of God. And we'll have to define what that means. How do we deny the power of God? And it's really within this verse. Having a form, a shape of godliness, having a set of... um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Traditions, perhaps, that we follow. We have a form of being a church. We have a service that has a certain form. It has hymnals. It has prayers. It has sermonettes and sermons. It has a form of godliness where we talk about God. There are a lot of churches in the world who have a form of godliness but don't have the power of God behind them. Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, 
Lutherans, name them all. They have a form. But we too came to have a form of godliness. Did not the Jews in Christ's day have a form of godliness? Didn't they look to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Didn't they look to the Father? Didn't they have temples and go to them and even read the scriptures? But they didn't have the power of God. Looking at the way Christ talked to them in Matthew 23 and various other places, do you think he was giving them his power to do anything? Because they had rejected most all the Old Testament for the traditions of men. And that's what he told them. And they rejected him. And where does power come from? The Father and the Son. And having rejected them and their word, or rejected them by rejecting their word, then they rejected any power over them that God might have. And they went their own way. So the Jews don't have the power of God either. Who does? There is only one group on the face of the earth who has um, that option, who has that possibility to have the power of God. And that's those whom he has called out of the world and given his truth. No one else has the power of God. They have power in some ways, but it's the power of men. It's the power of Satan. But they are not attached to God, and I'm going to show you that. And if they're not attached to God, then none of his power flows through them. So we're the only ones who have that option. And how much of his power do we have? I think that's a good question. We sometimes look for more power, and I think we should be looking for more power from God. But we need to know how to achieve it. First of all, we need to realize we don't have much of it and that it needs to be increased. Having a form of godliness but denying the power of, of thereof from such turn away. Now that's an instruction to us. If we don't find the power of God, we should turn away. I ask you this. If people come in contact with you and me, will they sense the power of God in us? And if they don't, they're supposed to turn away from us. Okay? Now what he says here? If they don't find the power of God in us, they should turn away from us. And if we don't find the power of God in others, we are to turn away from them. I hate to address this because it's scary to actually say if you and I don't evince and evidence the power of God people should not have anything to do with us. That puts a bug on our back to come to have the power of God, doesn't it? Let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. This is a responsibility we simply have to address. Matthew 22, and here let's go down to verse 29. Uh, this is a situation, well, from verse 23, 
where he's talking to the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. They just simply didn't believe in a resurrection. Even though they read Ezekiel 37, where it talks about a resurrection. Uh, they read Daniel, which talks about him being resurrected. They read Scripture, which says God will resurrect. What was their problem? They didn't believe it. They didn't believe Scripture. So Christ discussed the matter with them. And what did he say to them? Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures. They had either forgotten, not read, or somehow bypassed those that I just mentioned among many others in the Old Testament, talking about the resurrection. So he said, you don't know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. They were denying that God had the power to resurrect. Denying that he said there would be a resurrection, and if they avoided that, that was because there was no belief there. They simply didn't believe God could or would resurrect. They did not believe in the power of God. Now, we as a church years ago, and I think most in the church today still, in one form or another, still believe in divine healing, that God can heal. But they doubt it. They wonder about it. They think maybe God can heal so-and-so, but I'm not so sure he can heal me. I think I'll go to the doc. Now, is that a form of denying the power of God? Is that showing by our actions, by our fruits, that we really don't believe he will heal us? I mean, why do you need a new kidney or a new heart or a clone or whatever if God can heal? If God said he will heal? Now, if we do something that takes God's prerogative. He says he's our healer, forgives our iniquities, heals our diseases. We don't believe him on either count, do we? We still carry our sins around, not believing they're really forgiven, and we live in bad conscience. We live in guilt so often because we don't believe that Christ's sacrifice was big enough to to forgive our iniquities. So we still haul them around with us in our minds and hearts. And we don't believe he will heal and can heal, and is our healer, though he plainly states it in Psalm 103, 3-4. We don't believe him. So we're not forgiven, and we're not healed. We have the same problem these Sadducees did. We don't really read and understand the Scripture, and we don't believe and the power of God. That is testimony against us that we're doing the same things they did. We say, well, we believe in the resurrection. Well, how much do you believe that you will be in the resurrection based on the way you're living? How confident of that are you? Do you believe the power of God is there for you? Now, Paul was not that confident early in his life, but he finally, toward the end of it, came to have that kind of confidence in God. 
I've finished the race, I've finished, or finished the course, I've run a good race, and I will be in the kingdom of God. He came to have that kind of confidence. I'm a long way from that yet. I look at me, and boy, it's scary. Now, I believe there will be a resurrection. I have no doubt of that. But whether I will be in it or not is still open to a great deal of question. And I'm not the only one that questions that. <laughs> a lot of people around the world question that about me. Now, I'm not getting paranoid, don't get me wrong. Like one fellow said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> It'd be really encouraging to someone who is fearful, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe they're after you after all. <laughs> But he's giving us some clues here, isn't he? That we better look at some scriptures and we better believe those scriptures. And that is important in coming to understand the power of God. In other words, to have the power of God, we first have to have knowledge. Knowledge of scripture. See, they didn't understand the scripture, therefore they didn't understand the power of God. And what that is saying, really, is that Scripture can and will empower you. You want to come to have the power of God? I do. That's a good starting place. It's understanding the words of God. Knowing what they are and coming to understand what they mean is a source of power. And what power do I have with you? As a human being? None. The only power I can possibly have with you is knowing this book, knowing what it says and being able to explain it to you in such a way that helps your relationship with God. That's the only power I have with you. That's the only reason you're here putting up with me is because you hope that you will receive knowledge of God that will stand you in good stead and lead you toward the resurrection. Otherwise, I'm just another snorting, sweating human being with problems just like you have. It is only the Word of God that gives power. And we need more of that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Here Paul instructs them in verse 16, 1 Corinthians 4:16, Be you followers of me, for this cause have I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you in remembrance of my ways which be in Christ. Now he's saying here, follow me because my ways are in Christ. In another place he said, be you followers of me as I follow Christ. Or in another way of putting it, don't follow me unless I do follow Christ. We got that turned around there in Worldwide for quite a few years. Follow me because I said so. It wasn't the rule of law, but the law of rule. I'm the ruler, so do what I say. That's wrong. Now, some are puffed up, verse 18, as though I would not come to you. They were acting as if Paul would never darken the door again. They were discounting Paul. 
But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. We can say a lot of words. We can be puffed up in our own minds and spout a lot of words and spout a lot of knowledge. But he says the kingdom of God is in power, not just in vain words of those who would exalt themselves and try to put themselves above Paul in this case. What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Now, they would have much preferred, I'm sure, to have him to come in a spirit of love and meekness rather than with a, a rod to pound them with. And he would prefer to come that way. It is only if they continued with their pride and vanity, spiritual pride, that he would have to come with a rod of correction. Now, if we can be corrected by the Word of God, then we don't have to have loud words, necessarily. So the kingdom of God is in power. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. Let's tie that together with this. 2 Timothy 1. We're all pretty familiar with this, I think. He's talking to Timothy, addressing him here. And uh, he's saying, verse 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, not a faith that was sort of worked up, or a merely words which say, I have faith, not a falsity, but real faith, faith unfeigned. Wherefore, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God. He was given a gift through ordination, which is in you by the putting on of my hands, set aside, ordained as a minister, and God gave him a gift to be a servant of the people, through that ordination. And he says, I want you to stir that up because Timothy obviously was not performing in the capacity that he ought to be performing or at the level that he should be. He was not evidencing, for one thing, the power of God as we're about to see. Remember then the stirring up of the gift of God for God, verse 7, has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if we have the Spirit of God, we should begin to show power, among other things. We should be sound-minded, yes, and we should have love of God and of the brethren. But he mentions power here. Now, when you're fearful, you don't have much power, do you? Let's say you've just been accosted in a back alley by four big men and you have no weapons, and it's dark, and they have weapons, and they're bigger than you. Do you feel powerful at that moment? No, you feel fearful and timid and afraid, and you don't have power. God wants us to come to have not just physical powers in that back alley, but to have spiritual power, strength, which is what Timothy evidently was lacking. So he's saying here that God's gift and God's spirit will impart power. 
Let's go to Matthew. Let's go to Acts five first. Acts five. Acts five. Now, if we want the spirit of power. How can we achieve and have power? Acts five verse thirty two. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to them that obey him. If we are to have the spirit of power from God, you cannot subtract obedience from the equation. God gives his spirit to them that obey. Remember what I said earlier about the Methodists and the Baptists and the Catholics and the Jews? They do not have the power of God because they do not have the spirit of God. They think they have the spirit of God, but Satan also has power. And God only gives his power to them that obey him. Obey what? His words, his instructions, his commandments, his laws. And most, all those groups that I mentioned, plus many, many others I didn't, I don't mean to pick on those five or six, but hundreds of them, have said the law of God is of none effect. It's done away. And they do not obey God. They do not even pretend to obey God. In fact, they preach very loudly that you don't have to obey God, that everything in the law is done away with. Now, God is telling us right here in so many words, that he does not give them his spirit. Even Satan's ministers can appear as angels of light. They can sound so good to the human ear. They can sound so appealing. They can really seem righteous in many cases. But if they do not obey God, he flatly says, I do not give them my Holy Spirit. Therefore, anyone who tells you the law is done away with does not have the Spirit of God. That's not my opinion. That's Acts 5.32, Scripture. So he gives his Spirit to the obedient. You want more of God's Spirit? Maybe you need to be more obedient in a lot of ways. Now, we believe in obeying God's law because the Scriptures tell us to. But we have trouble living up to it. That is our difficulty. We're not like the Methodists in that sense. We do have knowledge which should empower us to be able to receive the Spirit of God in power through obedience to his ways. If you want the Spirit of God, you better obey all of his wishes, all of his instruction, all of his scripture, all of his commandments and laws. All scripture is given for inspiration for instruction, for correction. Instruction in righteousness. I didn't quite quote that right, but almost. I'm not quite there yet, am I? Like a long way. All right, let's go to Matthew 19, verse 17. I want to underline that for a moment. I know we believe it, but how much do we live up to it, and how much are we lacking in the power of God as a result of our inability to live up to these things. Matthew 19, verse 17. And he said to him, Why call you me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, people will argue that Paul said the law is done away with and you don't have to keep the commandments. 
Paul didn't say that at all. And I can show you some quotes from Paul which say that we should keep the law. But there are some things he wrote which Peter himself, an apostle who knew the man, said were hard to understand. Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. <laughs> this statement of Christ here, I don't see how could be misunderstood. What part of that is hard for you to grasp? Any any part of it? If you will enter into life, if you would like to live eternally, you would like to be in the kingdom of God, do what? Read Paul and say the law is done away. Is that what Paul said? I mean Christ said? No. Keep the commandments. Now if you want to put one authority above another, are you going to follow Christ or follow Paul? Now there is not a conflict in truth. Paul did not intend in any way to say the law is done away with. And I don't want to get into all of that thing about law and grace right today. I don't have time to do that. It would take a long time. But this is a very clear statement of Scripture, see? That's what Mr. Armstrong always told us. Interpret the obscure Scriptures with the clear Scriptures. If you want the power of the resurrection, and you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Pretty plain statement. No equivocation at all. Chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Isn't that what an echo of what we've been reading in the Old Testament about turning to him with his whole heart and then he would turn to us? Almost a direct quote from the Old Testament. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, these two statements, these two principles, hang all the law and the prophets. Now, he's saying here, you really only have to keep these two things. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your fellow man. Because that is what the prophets and the law are all about. If you could keep those two precepts, those two principles, absolutely, completely, you wouldn't need the law. All the law does is explains how to go about loving God and your fellow man, because by our very own nature, we won't know that. So he gives us this. If, if, we, if we really had spiritual eyes to see, to truly understand, the only word we would need would be those two verses. The Bible would be very short, very concise, very simple. Two verses is all it would be, that would be required of God's Word if we really grasp the intent of those two verses. But we don't. Therefore, we need this whole big old book that we have to read and study constantly in order to truly grasp what he meant. Because he summarizes it. He says, they all hang on this. The rest of the book, the Law and the Prophets, hang on this. That's it. That's all there is to it. Very simple. Yeah, it's simple, isn't it? <laughs> we are not simple. <laughs> We're simple, all right, in a different way. Simple-minded. They don't have the truth of God. 
Now that is a fairly plain statement, is it? Isn't it? Is there a way you can misinterpret that? So now we've seen that anyone who does not believe in the Word of God, the commandments of God, does not have His Holy Spirit, nor do they have the truth. Now how can you have power, the power of God, when you don't have His Spirit or His truth? You can't. And therefore all these religions do not have the truth or the Spirit of God nor do they have the power of God. Any, human, any power they have is either human power of influence or it is satanic power. There are no other options. But whoso keeps his word... Now see, here again we have the Apostle John who was very close to Christ, before I move on, who knew Paul, had read all of Paul's writings, I'm sure, had heard Paul, in the conference in Jerusalem if nowhere else because Paul was out traveling a lot but he knew of Paul he knew what Paul had written and here he was at the very end of his life probably the 90's AD when this was written Paul was long since dead so was Peter all the apostles were dead except John and he by no means got out of Paul's writing that the commandment was done away with did he? After all was said and done, John was the only one left standing. He said, if you say you know God and you don't keep his commandments, you're just simply a liar and you don't even have the truth of God. So any church, any minister, any person who says the law is done away with doesn't have the spirit of God, the truth of God. All they have is a form of religion that does not have the power of God. They have denied the power of God. The power of God comes through keeping his words and his commandments. That's how you begin to have the power of God. If we are keeping God's commandments, we are model human beings, aren't we? And if you are a model human being, that gives you power with whom? With the world? No, because if you're like God, they don't like you. But if you are like him, and think like him, act like him, and are obedient, that gives you power with his people. And Paul was writing to Timothy, and he said, if people don't have the power of God, turn away from them. Now, we have the power of God if we are obeying him, because that will impress people who are also trying to be like God. They won't be impressed with our words, brethren. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Power over our own spirit. Power over our own mind. Power over our own body. Those things that he talked about there in Timothy. We're in perilous times because we don't have power over our own spirit and mind and body. And isn't there a proverb that talks about that? If a man does not have power over his own spirit, he has nothing. When we talk about the power of God and having people see power in us, they need to see the power of self-control. They need to see God's Spirit working through us to produce the fruits of the Spirit, which are peace, love, faith, long-suffering, patience. You know what? Most people don't have those things. 
Just look at people out here in the world. They don't have self-control. They don't have patience. They have tempers. They have trouble controlling themselves and what they do, see, hear, watch. And we have the opportunity through the Spirit of God to control ourselves, to control our thoughts, every one of them. And that gives us power the more we do that. But it requires obedience in the Spirit of God to have that kind of control over ourselves. Let's go on down here in 1 John 2, verse 5. But whoso keeps his word, see? Whoso keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. If we're keeping his commandments, following his instructions, then we begin to have confidence. We know we are in him. Why did I say I don't feel like I have it made? Because I still see in me many blemishes and spots and things that are not right. Thoughts that go through my mind. My hands sometimes do things that I wouldn't want them to do. So does my mouth. And the more I can learn to control those things by the power of God, then the more confidence I will have. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. To do and live just as he lived. That's our goal. That's our standard. That's our purpose. To walk as he walked. Now there's a little thing that a lot of people have on their walls. This brought this to my mind about the one set of footprints in the sand. Some of you probably have it. If you haven't, you've probably seen it on somebody else's wall. And it's a sweet little Protestant ditty that says, Oh, the Lord carries me. I'm not doing anything. He's carrying me. Now, He will lead us gently as lambs, and perhaps He will sometimes lift us up and cradle us as little lambs who've lost their way. So I'm not saying that that is entirely wrong. But I'm saying it can lull you into a false sense of security and thinking that he will carry you. That is Protestantism. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to obey. I don't have to follow these laws. All I have to do is love the Lord and he'll carry me to the kingdom of God in heaven and give me my wings. That's a different doctrine, but... That's the thought. Now, what does he tell you right here in Scripture? That we must walk as he walked. We have to get on the ground, and we have to put our feet forward, and we have to make ourselves walk like he walked. He's not going to carry us. He makes us walk. We have to make the choices. Will we walk where he walked, or will we walk somewhere else? You have to be careful with Protestantism. It'll lull you into thinking he does it all for you. Now, it is his work in us. He is working his salvation in us. Don't get me wrong. He does most of it. Because we of ourselves simply cannot save ourselves. He had to call us. He had to instruct us. He had to guide us. He has to lead us. He has to give us strength when we cry out for it. But he still expects us to perform. He expects us to do 
and to keep his laws and commandments and statutes and judgments. David was a man after his own heart. How much did he talk about doing that over and over and over through the Psalms? The power of God is to perform and to live as God. I'm not necessarily talking today about, let's say, the power of healing per se, or the power of this or that. I'm talking about the power to live as he lived. That is even more precious. As we live as he lived, those other powers will come. But the power to control your own spirit and mind and thoughts and actions, that's the real hard part. Let's go to one more scripture before I leave this thought. That's in Romans 7. Because I've used clear statements of Paul, and I'm not of Paul, but of Christ and of uh, John. But let's get a real clear statement from Paul himself here in Romans 7, verse 15. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Now that's the one, that's the guy that people use to try to advocate that the law is done away with. And he's saying it's a wonderful thing. Is the law something you ought to hate, despise, do away with, get rid of? Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. What is sin? The breaking of the law. So he's saying here that the law is what's truly spiritual. And you would have a lot of people tell you the law is done away with. It's not spiritual at all. It has no spiritual value. But this is Paul speaking. And he says the law is what's spiritual. I'm carnal. Yes, he writes some things that are hard to be understood, but that isn't too hard to understand, is it? Does anybody have trouble with that? Can I see your hand? I can't do it. That's pretty simple to me, pretty straightforward. Ephesians 6 now. Ephesians 6, if you will. (coughs) And here, uh, I want verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not to be fearful, but to be strong. This is Paul again writing. To be powerful in his might. You see, we don't have the power to control our hearts and our minds and our actions on our own. He had the power to perfectly control himself. He controlled absolutely every every thought that ever went through his mind. That doesn't mean that he didn't have temptations. Thoughts came to his mind of lust, of vanity, of, of uh, thievery. Of, he was tempted in all points like as we are. Anything you have ever been tempted to do, Christ was tempted. His mind said, I want to do that. It doesn't mean that wrong thoughts didn't come to his consciousness, to his mind. They came there. Otherwise, he couldn't have been tempted. Follow? I'm not tempted if I don't have something come in my mind that is contrary to God's way. I am only tempted when the wrong thought comes there. Let's say I'm sitting here and reading something, and 
I'm not being tempted because nothing is coming to my mind that is contrary to God. But now, if I see something I shouldn't eat, or some woman I shouldn't look at, or some car that's too expensive for me, or whatever it might be that comes to my mind, that conscious thought is in my head. And I have to bite it off. I have to change it. I have to cut it out. Jesus Christ had those thoughts come into his mind, but he shut them off. He cut them out. He deleted them. You know, like on your computer. He just hit the delete button. Bang, that one's out of here. That's wrong. I'll give you an example. What about when Satan tempted him? He said words to him. If you be the Son of God, which appealed to his vanity, then make these stones into bread. Now, if Satan said that to him, that penetrated Christ's consciousness, did it not? It's what he did with it that was important. It's not the temptation that is wrong. It's what you do with it when the temptation comes. If you allow it to breed and bring forth sin. I I think we need to grasp that. The temptation is not of itself wrong. It's when we give in to it that we've done wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that you ought to coddle temptation. Because if you coddle it up there and allow it to stay in your mind, it will produce sin. Christ just didn't let it stay there. I really think we we must understand that. That he was tempted in all points, like as we are. We give in. He never did. That's the difference. He had to resist just as much as you and I have to resist. There is no temptation that has ever occurred to you that did not occur just as powerfully or perhaps more so in Jesus Christ. He was a young, strong, virile man, human being. And every desire that has ever come to your heart and mind that is evil or wrong came to him. And it had to have, I think, come as strong or stronger than it's ever come to you or it wouldn't have a Savior. See, he had to overcome everything that we have to overcome. And he had to have had it just as strong a temptation or more so than you have and I have had or he wouldn't have experienced what we've experienced, right? It wasn't that his temptations were sort of mild and almost spiritual, and he could easily turn them away. His drives, his human nature was just as strong as ours is. And Satan was more concerned with causing him to sin than ever he has been concerned with you and I sinning. So for us to have a Savior, he had to have been tempted just as powerfully as we. He never once gave in. We allow ourselves to give in, don't we? We say, well, I'll repent later, or, or we're just thinking the way we're thinking, and we don't take whatever the steps are that are necessary to get rid of that often. And we allow the mind to drift on it, and first thing you know, it leads us to sin. Sin. 
So we have to be strong in Him and in the power of His might. We are weak in base. And we are powerless on our own, basically. But we're not supposed to stay that way. You know, that, that, that's one of the finest, easiest excuses you can find in the Bible to justify what you're doing or thinking. Well, I guess I'm still just weak in base. Poor me. I'm not going to get that overcome today because I'm so weak in base. Well, pity, pity, pity. <laughs> no, we're... He called us as the weak in the base to what? Glorify Himself. In that, He can take that which is weak, powerless, and base, worthless, and make it into something worthwhile. That's what He's doing with you and me. And it's to his glory that he can make that transition. But we have to come to be powerful. Spiritually powerful. And that means controlling our every thought and action. That is power. Now when people see us, they should see the power of God. They should see people who are patient, who are loving, who are kind, who are gentle, who are full of love, hospitality, faith, because that is power. That's spiritual power. And when I throw a tantrum, or I feel self-pity, or I'm weak in any spiritual way, then I don't have power, do I? And if people see me and say, well, I don't see any power there, it doesn't have to be the obvious things of a dramatic healing or resurrection to show the power of God. It is simply the power of God to control ourselves. That is what people will respect in us. What do you disrespect in people? I mean, your spiritual mind, what do you disrespect? That which is not of God. And you respect that which is of God. And that's why we have trouble with each other, is because we see things in each other that are not of God. But maybe we need to give each other a little more opportunity and credit, because none of us, are perfect. They may have a very obvious fault. Ours might not be as obvious. Some men's sins are go right before them and others follow behind. Some are more obvious than others, but we all have them. So is the kettle going to call the pot black? Maybe there's something that one doesn't understand yet. Maybe they haven't had the power to overcome that particular thing yet. But you've got something else you haven't had the power to overcome. So what's the difference? Is their sin worse than yours because it's theirs and not yours? Is your sin better than theirs because it's your sin and not theirs? What will sin do? Kill you. Any sin will kill you. So, the degree really doesn't make that much difference. So how can we be judgmental? And how can we judge or condemn another man's servant? And if each of us is Christ's servant, we can't condemn Christ's servants. He called them. He knew how weak and base they were. And he's the one that's working salvation in them and giving them power as they respond and obey him to control themselves, to get rid of pride and vanity, envy, jealousy, covetousness, etc., etc. Why are we in perilous times? Because we have lack of the power of God to control ourselves. And that imperils any Christian. Our salvation is threatened. That's peril. 
will be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Romans 1, verse 16. Romans 1. Here it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was given to the Jew first, so he had first crack at it. doesn't mean he took advantage of it, because most of them didn't. And he goes on to ex- explain that in Romans 3, that the Jews were all the things Christ called them in Matthew 23. He called them the same things and more. But this gospel, this word, is power unto salvation. Within these two covers is the power to live forever. Within these two covers is the power never to sin, to live forever in absolute compliance with every wish of God. I'm holding up power before you in this book. All the power of the universe is vested in these pages for everything that you ever wanted. Security, peace, happiness, joy, health, long life. It's all in here. Now do we begin to understand a little bit why Christ said you don't understand the Scripture nor the power of God. And we're empowered by this word. We'll see that very clearly now as we go on a little bit further. Um, Let's go to Habakkuk 2. Habakkuk 2. I go back here to the Old Testament because it is pertinent to New Testament living and indeed we'll see is quoted in the New Testament. Habakkuk 2. I will stand upon my watch. Didn't he tell us to watch? And set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say to me, and what I shall answer him when I am reproved. Because Habakkuk had taken God to task in this book, and wondered when these things were going to happen, and was he really going to to answer his prayers? The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, and make it plain upon tables, on paper, as we would look at it, that he may run that reads it. We're in haste. We're hurrying. We, we have something to do here to become righteous, and we better hurry. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. We're almost at the end now, and these things are beginning to speak that are written back here. At the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Though it seems like it's a long way off. Though it seems like it's never going to happen. He says, wait, <coughs> because it will surely come it will not tarry. Now, what does he tell us to do? Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. The spirit of pride who lifts himself up and says he's the Philadelphian or who says he is righteous and everyone else is not. That is not upright. That is not righteous. That, is, that doesn't fit the plumb line. It's not straight up and down. And the plumb line is going to be given to a couple of people one of these days. And they will be told to measure and see if something is straight up and down. (coughs) If it is righteous, if it is of God or not. So if our soul and our pride 
our spiritual pride is lifted up, we're in trouble. But the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. In other words, you've got to believe the word of God. Isn't that what Christ said about the Sadducees there who didn't believe in the resurrection? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. <coughs> you simply don't believe that God can or will resurrect as one example. There are many other examples where we have disbelief in God. All facets of life at some point come into play here. Let's go to Hebrews 4. You'll see this echoed by, apparently, Paul in the book of Hebrews. I read something the other day said a woman collaborated and helped write Hebrews, and I don't believe it for a second. Hebrews 4, <clears throat> verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as to them, speaking of ancient Israel. But the word preached did not profit them. All the preaching in the world doesn't do a bit of good, he says, and didn't do a bit of good. <coughs> not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. I could tell you the laws and the ways of God from now on. We could sit here and read this Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. And when we finish, we could go back and read it all again. And we could just do this until we got old and died, or got bored and died, whatever. If it is not mixed with faith in those who hear it. The word alone is not enough. You have to believe it. And this is a critical issue. Not being mixed with faith in those people. Verse 11, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The, God, the word of God will bring out the truth. <coughs> The word of God is true. Let every man be a liar by comparison. Where is the power? It's in the word of God. You've got a sword in your hand. big double-edged sword if you've got the word of God. There's power in that. If you wanted to show the power of God, then you have to have the word of God and you have to believe it. If it tells us we should do this, then we should do it. If it tells us we shouldn't work on the Sabbath, then we shouldn't, even if it means not having a job. Now, I've heard people say to members of the church who were not in the church, well, I, I recognize that you believe Saturday's a Sabbath, but that shouldn't get in the way of your paycheck. <laughs> it's just carnal human reasoning. Money is the most important thing. Obviously, it's more important than God's Sabbath. No, it's not. Do you have the faith and the power to say, I'll turn down this job. I know it pays $30 an hour, but I can't work on the Sabbath. That's it. End of story. No negotiation. I'll find a job that pays me 6 $7 an hour that allows me to rest on the Sabbath, and I won't have as much physically 
but I'll have a lot spiritually, and I will have the power of God. I am empowered to control myself and my lusts and my covetousness for money and my desire for material things because the spiritual is more important. Now, that's a beautiful attitude, and if people see that in you, they'll recognize the power of God in you, won't they? They'll see you have power to control covetousness. Maybe we're looking for the wrong thing sometimes when we say, well, we're looking for the power of God. I'll tell you, it takes a lot of power to be like God. It takes a lot of power to think and act like God. Power that comes from Him. Healing and that kind of thing is a gift of God. And that's a little bit different than the kind of power that I'm trying to explain today so that we can understand what kind of power we should have. All right, how are we going to come to have this power? Let's go to Romans 10, verse 17. <clears throat> Romans 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You have to hear the Word of God to come to have faith and belief in it. And those Sadducees had begun perhaps to quit reading the Bible, they forgot about those scriptures that said there was a resurrection, and then they began to forget the power of God. If we want the power of God, we have to read the Bible. If we want to believe God can do the things he says he will do, we have to continually review the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God. I want you, I hope, that as a result of me flapping my jaws up here for over an hour today, you walk out of here, or you hang up the phone, with more belief, with more faith in God than you had at the start of the day. Because we've been talking about the words of God. And we've been hearing the word of God. Therefore, it should affect us and give us more faith than we had when we woke up this morning. And that dissipates. The inner man is renewed day by day, as we read last week. You have to continually hear the word of God in order to have the kind of faith required for salvation because obedience is required for salvation. And if you aren't reviewing these words, it's so easy to forget them, especially when we're tempted. You know, I, re I really want to think this. I really want to do this. And it's easy just to forget the words of God. If you'd read it that morning, maybe you would withstand that temptation and have enough of the power of God to control yourself. Whereas if you didn't read it, Maybe you'll give in. It imparts faith. That's what he tells us right here. Hearing, or reviewing, reading, and obeying, obeying bring what? Confidence. That's what Paul had at the end of his life, was confidence that he was going to be in the kingdom of God because he had overcome. He had grown. He hadn't overcome early in his spiritual life. He may have overcome a little bit on that road to Damascus when he was struck blind and laid there for a while saying, what is going on here? That was the start. But he had by no means overcome his nature at that point. But by the end of his life, he could look back and say, I have overcome. I have run the race. I finished the course. And he had confidence as a result of that obedience. So let's close this then in Hebrews 10. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, verse 35.
Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you've read his word, you've followed it, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. This is quoting from Habakkuk. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. See why Paul told Timothy that the Spirit of God gives you the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind? Timothy had to avoid the perils of his human nature. He had to avoid fear that was based on forgetting some of the things he had been taught as a child from the Scriptures and not living up to them and quaking in fear. God does not want us to be fearful. Doesn't he include the fearful in Revelation 22 as those that will be destroyed? He wants us to be with minds of power. And God's Spirit, through obedience, imparts power to us. The power of self-control. The power of living as God lives. And nobody else on this earth except God's true people that he's called out have any hope of living in power. So we can't come here with a form of godliness. We can't come here by rote. We can't come here to fill a chair. We can't come here to sort of say the right things. We can't come here as a sham. Feigning faith. We have to come here and admit the power of God. We cannot deny it. And we do it by reading his word and believing his word and doing what he says. And we will come to have power over our own spirit and our own nature. And then people will see the power of God in us. Once we have that kind of power to control our attitudes and our thoughts, then maybe we'll begin to come to have those gifts of God which we have maybe thought were power. But the real power is in godliness. And then those gifts follow that. Okay, end of sermon. We'll 